Welcome to the Abundant Edge Podcast. Here we dive deep into the worlds of permaculture, natural building, and regenerative living as we aspire to help you reach your highest potential for yourself, for your community, and for this beautiful planet that we all share. As always, I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher, and I have a great session for you in this week's episode, so let's jump right in. Are you looking for the best resources to help you build a regenerative lifestyle? New Society Publishers has been a leader in sustainable publishing for over 30 years. They publish good news and solutions for individuals and organizations seeking to change their lives so that they may change the world for the better. Their company mandate goes far beyond the single bottom line of profit. They care deeply not only about what they publish, but also how they do business. They believe in the authors that they take on and the works that they bring to the marketplace. From sustainable living to progressive parenting, New Society Publishers has the books you need to help build a better world. Buy your print and ebooks online at www.newsociety.com or at fine bookstores near you. Have you been researching and learning about regenerative living, permaculture, and natural building for a while, but are still a bit unsure of where to start? Are you new to these topics and feeling overwhelmed about the sheer scope of information and knowledge that's out there to be absorbed? Are you a seasoned professional in the field looking to expand your experience and expertise with other professionals who are pushing the boundaries of regenerative projects? Well, you're in luck. Here at Abundant Edge, we have just what you need to take the next essential steps towards putting the information from these podcasts, interviews, books, and articles into action. We offer courses for beginners, intermediates, and even seasoned professionals to learn from successful regenerative business owners, farmers, builders, and other artisans who are keen to share their knowledge. Our teachers and facilitators have been working and experimenting tirelessly to provide the most up-to-date information available to help you put your skills and efforts to use in regenerating the planet and transforming the global economy into one that abandons the outdated model of consumption and destruction into one of health, stewardship, cooperation, and abundance. Come and get your hands dirty. You can get a full list of courses and trainings as well as volunteer opportunities now at AbundantEdge.com. We're looking forward to seeing you here. Rammed earth is one of the earthen building techniques that I personally have the least experience with, but since it has been steadily growing in popularity around the world for its beauty and durability, I reached out to April McGill of Root Down Designs to find out more about how this ancient vernacular building technique is being revived in the southeastern U.S. and what challenges there are to getting rammed earth buildings permitted and accepted. In this interview, April talks about how rammed earth structures help to combat some of the biggest challenges of building in her region, such as humidity and mold. We discuss some of the hurdles for architects and owner-builders in getting natural buildings approved by local building authorities, and we also explore hybrid homes, permaculture designs for structures, and much more. April also teaches courses with the American College of Building Arts in Charleston, South Carolina, so stay tuned till the end to learn how you can get hands-on training in a variety of natural building methods in the South Carolina area. Now I'll turn things over to April McGill. Hey, April. It's great to finally speak to you. How are you doing today? I'm doing good, Oliver. How are you? I'm doing really well, thanks. So, hey, look, I've got a ton of questions that I'd love to ask you because I've been following some of the posts that you've been putting out and your material online for quite some time. But what do you say we get started by having you introduce yourself to the audience and tell us a little bit about your background and how you got inspired working with natural building materials? Sure. Well, um, my background is in architecture and... um, 
that is what I'm trained in by trade. So I um, I worked in the architecture industry for about eight years um, until I got quite frustrated and was looking for a change. Um, and at that time, it was um, around 2011, I uh, stumbled upon natural building, which I had never heard about before, um, interestingly enough, in architecture school or, or in eight years of practice. And uh, as soon as I started to read about it, I was hooked and I knew that was where I wanted to take my work and my career. So I, I started down the natural building path of just learning and self-educating and then um, and then started to incorporate those principles into my work. And so I um, started my own business called Root Down Designs and it's a uh, full service architecture firm um, with a heavy focus on um, natural building principles and concepts. And I am working to promote um, um, methods such as rammed earth, compressed earth block, and most recently, um, hempcrete um, into my work. And I'm also an adjunct professor with a local um, college here in Charleston, South Carolina called the American College of Building Arts. And so I am um, teaching what's called sustainable masonry um, with them. And I also um, occasionally lead my own privately run um, natural building workshops. So um, you've just about covered all the bases. Yeah, so I've got a lot going on, and and um, but that's kind of a quick <laughs> two-minute um, rundown. Fantastic. So now you mentioned that you have focused mostly on compressed earth block and rammed earth. Out of all of the options that there are for earthen building, what made you focus mostly on those? Yeah, so um, I, after... Um, attending some of my first workshops and, and really kind of entering into that self-education process of um, what natural building is and and all the different methods. And I came back to where I live in the southeast of the United States, kind of wondering the same thing. Okay, well, what methods are the most appropriate for this region? which methods are going to be most accepted by people in this region. Um, and so the problems that we have, the major problems that we have in my, in my climate region is um, water and moisture-based, so rot, um, termites, mold issues. Um, these are the common issues. And so... I felt more compelled to work with um, mass systems. So looking at um, you know, some of the heavier um, mass wall systems versus like straw bale um, and some of the straw heavy systems. Straw made me a little uncomfortable um, in our super wet, humid region here. And I felt that you know people are gonna naturally um, be a little bit weary of any heavy straw-based systems. Um, but then the, the major turning point for me was I, in my research, um, I came across 
um, 200 year old rammed earth structures in South Carolina. And so that was the major turning point for me. And I, you know, that I thought, well, we have a, a local regional history of this method. And I began to dig more and I found that there were periods in the past where rammed earth um, was quite popular in different parts of the Southeast, including Alabama um, and, and other Southeast states um, where the climate is very wet, very hot, and humid. And so I felt that if rammed earth was used 200 years ago, and we have these buildings that are still standing today and they're in really great shape and they were not reinforced, they were not, you know, there was no soil testing, there was no engineering, very, very primitive, basic rammed earth structures, and they're still in great shape today. So I thought that was sort of my catalyst for um, running with um, rammed earth. And um, from there, the com compressed earth block um, really is, is, I think, a method that is more accessible and available to more people just because of the simplicity of building with blocks instead of um, having to deal with formwork and having to have the some carpentry um, skills. So um, that is that is the major reason is, is really because of the history that I found um, with the rammed earth. Now, you mentioned that there's all these challenges in your region, especially due to moisture, humidity, and termites specifically. Now, I know that there's not any organic material in rammed earth or compressed earthen blocks. So that gets rid of the mm -hmm. risk of termites off the bat. How does right. the clay structure and the makeup of your wall systems help to address the moisture issues? Well, um, you know, I think like any good building should be detailed. We want to um, keep keep the earthen walls off of the ground and out of any kind of um, flood activity. Um, and of course, good roof covering. So, you know, we're always going to strive to protect the walls as much as possible from moisture. But, um, with the ability of the clay to take on a pretty substantial amount of moisture and then um, release it, um, unlike wood or any cellulose kind of based material, um, just that the breathable nature of earthen materials um, for me was really reassuring and you know, one of the, the biggest things that the one of the biggest questions I get all the time from people when I when I um, bring I'm talking or teaching or, or whatever is they think that the walls are going to melt. You know, that they their misconception is that if the wall gets rained on or if it gets wet, it's going to just deteriorate, deteriorate and, and melt away. Um but as, as we know, if it's built correctly with the right composition of materials and the right compaction and proper detailing, um, you can, I mean, these walls are, you know, close to 
being like stone when they're done. And, and once people see it and they feel it and they go inside one of these, then they get it, you know, oh, okay. And they realize that an earthen wall doesn't mean that it's going to melt or it's going to deteriorate. Um, and in fact, it's quite the opposite. And these walls should be timeless and sustainable and should last for hundreds of years, if not thousands of years, if detailed properly. So, you know, it all boils back to um, proper detailing, proper design and proper construction. So like any method, if it's not done right or not done well, then you're going to have issues. Um, but if it's done correctly, then um, we shouldn't have any issues. So. Well, so let's unpack that a little bit. Let's talk about some of the ways that you can ensure that a rammed earth structure is done correctly. Let's talk about a little bit of that composition that allows it to weather what most people would consider um, conditions that would not be correct for building something with clay. Because rammed earth is one of the few natural building materials that I have not had any personal experience with. And I'm really interested to know... Um, how you sort of solve these issues and made sure that these structures are going to last for a long time. Yeah. So, um, I've actually seen both. I've seen, I've seen it done well and I've seen it done not well. Um, and so the, just like any other method, you know, you want to start with the right soil composition. So you're looking for that, um, kind of 70%, um, sand to 30% clay, and um, I have been able to, to find that particular soil. I have a source here um, that it comes from, so I've identified the right soil um, and, and done some testing on it just to make sure it's the right um, clay to sand proportions and there's not a bunch of silt or, or organic material in it. So that's the first step is finding the right um, clay soil. And how do you and test then, to make sure that those ratios are what you're looking for? Yeah, so I, I work with a um, testing lab here in the Charleston area. They are a soil testing lab, geotechnical engineers, and they can run different kinds of tests that will um, tell you the basically break all that down for you. And then, you know, they, um, I, you know, say, saying just clay soil, clay to sand um, is a very broad and generic way of talking about it um, because they didn't get into much more detail with, um, you know, clay soil can be categorized in hundreds of different soil types but but the bottom line is that um, they have some tests that they can run and then also I have some of my own you know sort of what I call backyard tests that I do which is you know the standard jar test where you put the soil in the in the jar of water um, the worm test where you roll it into a worm um, the the uh, making little hamburger patties out of the soil and letting it dry in the sun. So lots of the um, kind of backyard soil tests that I think most of us have in the natural building world have learned to do. Um, so just lots of experimenting. Um, 
lots of my own testing and experimenting with this particular soil um, to make sure that it works properly. You know, ideally I can use the same soil for if I'm doing cob, if I'm doing plaster work, if I'm doing um, slip straw. Um, so it's, it's a soil that, you know, I've identified as a, as a good um, soil for these methods. Um, and then with the rammed earth, um, what we found just through kind of our own experimenting and testing is that we needed to add a little bit more sand um, and aggregate into the mix. And so with rammed earth, you want to have varying degrees of aggregate. So um, we have we, we determined that we needed to add a little bit of mason sand, and then we also added um, some granite gravel. It's a 7, um, I think it's called 789 um, granite gravel. And so that was just to get some varying sizes of aggregate in there. And, and the reason you want that is because Ramder relies on um, <clears throat> compaction and friction. And so when you have varying sizes of aggregate, you just end up with a much stronger material. Um, and so the components are the, the clay soil, a small amount of, of added aggregate. And then I am doing stabilized rammed earth. So we are adding um, a small percentage of Portland cement, which I know is controversial, controversial um, in the natural building world, but um, we have tested rammed earth, unstabilized rammed earth, and stabilized, and the the um, the strength that is gained by just adding a small amount of Portland um, makes it exponentially stronger and also more water resistant and because we have such a wet region here my feeling was that it would make the walls stronger more durable last longer and and you wouldn't have as much dusting and flaking um so the added cement um i felt was worth the the carbon footprint and the cost, although I am very interested in um, transitioning over to lime stabilized um, instead of Portland, but have just not got to that point yet. Sure. Um, well, so just to play devil's yeah. advocate a little bit, because I know there will be other listeners who will ask these questions otherwise. Um, Really, what is the the difference in the stabilization that adding that small percentage of cement makes, especially if you have found 200-year-old rammed earth structures that didn't use that and seem to be in good shape? Yeah, so the, well, the, the old rammed earth, um, traditionally, they had a lime render uh, on both sides. So the rammed earth walls were actually covered both on the interior and exterior with a lime render. And Have over you ever the tried years, putting renders or plasters on your own rammed earth walls? I know that's not I common. Have. Yeah, yeah, so you can, you can do that, but in, most people are 
drawn to this method because of the beautiful natural aesthetic of the, the layering that you get with rammed earth because you're compacting it layer by layer. And so you, you get this really beautiful aesthetic that you just can't get really with any other method. Um, so a lot of people are drawn to this method because of that aesthetic and they don't want to cover it up and you don't, and, and rammed earth, I believe is one of the only methods where you don't have to do any finishing to the walls once the formwork comes down. Um, so um, historically, the these structures did use a lime render on both sides, and it was over the years they would replaster it. And and the walls, the buildings that have lasted the longest um, are the ones that had ongoing plaster work happening over the years you know every five or six years or whatever they would come in and do another plaster render um so i think the integrity of those walls had a lot to do with that kind of sacrificial plaster layer um and so the problem that i also encounter with modern day building is that we have to meet really stringent codes. Um, in my area, we have um, seismic, really high seismic, which a lot of people don't realize here in South Carolina. But this particular region, we have high seismic and we have 150 mile per hour hurricane. So the engineering and the codes that we have to meet are just so um, stringent that I work with a structural engineer um, and he, in order for us to really gain the um, confidence of the code officials and really the general public, I, I've just found that when you when you add just that small amount of cement, you get a, a much stronger wall. Without the cement, what I have found is it's while it's still strong, and, and there's no doubt in my mind that it it would be fine. I mean, I would build an unstabilized rammed earth structure and live in it. The problem is having to get it through all of the bureaucracy and all of the codes and, and all of the permitting. Um, you can just gain people's confidence a lot more when you have a wall system that's not um, flaking or crumbling. You do get a little bit more, I have found, um, you get a little bit more of the dusting and the crumbling um, without that stabilization. And so, um, and I prefer to not plaster the walls for the reasons that I mentioned before. So, um, well, so let's talk about those aesthetic uh, aggregate layers that you add in there. What do you do to mm -hmm. sort of highlight the the different layers and add color and some depth to those walls to get the aesthetic finish that you're looking for? So, um, so far, we, we haven't really added any color. I mean, we're just using the color of the earth, that, that soil. And that soil really is what determines the color. Um, and so we really just haven't, um, done anything at this point to change the color or add, add pigment. Um, and you just, you end up seeing the natural 
illustrations just from how it's compacted. Um, and then there's just a lot of natural um, changes to the color that you see just when, you know, there might be more sand, more um, clay in certain areas. So you end up seeing just the beautiful variations of the clay soil itself. But um, at this point, yeah, I have not, I have not really experimented with adding any kind of pigments to change the color. Fair enough. So I know from yeah. following your website and some of your posts that you're branching out and trying out more hybrid structures, including timber frame and hempcrete infills. Could you talk about what inspired mm -hmm. you to, to try out these other building methods and how they address the same issues that you've been solving previously with earthen wall systems? Yeah, so um, the with the mass wall system, um, and, and again, you know, going back to what the issues that we have here, which primarily are um, moisture-related, rot, termites, um, and you know, in recent years, we've just had more and more flooding. Um, I'm where I live. We are just surrounded by water. There's tons of water, and so, and then in the last few years, there's been more and more flooding. Um, and it's very hot. It's very humid here. So um, the um, the mass wall systems really keep the interior space very cool, especially if it's designed properly. With, if you have the ability to do, you know, passive heating, passive cooling strategies, um, but there are also limitations. Um, these mass wall systems are very heavy, they're very dense, and they really need to be rooted to the ground. So you're only gonna build with those systems where you're not in a flood zone, you're not in a, or a, a zone that's prone to flooding. Um, but there are areas where you're, if you're gonna build a house, it needs to be elevated higher up, or you just may have a client who wants their house elevated higher up um, so that they can park underneath um, or just for different different reasons. So if you are, if, if you have a client or if you have a situation where the house needs to be elevated higher than, you know, a few feet off the ground, um, to me, it's no longer a viable option to do a mass wall system. So then you really need to look towards a lightweight system. And um, I'm just increasingly wanting to get away from the stick built, um, you know, plywood sheathing conventional systems and move more towards um, timber frame or post and beam structures um, because they just use a lot less material, um, the, the aesthetically or just more beautiful. And um, I work with, with my involvement at the College of Building Arts. One of the trades that they teach is timber framing. So I have students who are very interested in taking their timber framing knowledge and incorporating natural building systems. So we're, I'm looking to really in a sense, create a market for them 
here in Charleston. Um, so we can come up with a prototype for a timber framed house. Um, and what I'm exploring now is um, hempcrete infill because the hempcrete is also rot resistant, um, termite resistant, but it has the good insulation qualities. So, you know, my feeling is that there isn't really a one-size-fits-all solution to houses it's, or buildings. It's, you know, just I would like, certainly agree with that, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, I just think every situation has to be custom um, examined. And what system, what method you use has to be determined by all of the parameters and the resources. And so it's just another option for um when we need a more lightweight system or we're doing a more elevated home um, or where, you know, mass, the mass wall system just isn't desired. So um, my, my goal is to kind of have a few different prototypes where there are pros and cons to each one. And then, and then that person could choose um, which prototype they feel is the most um, well suited for them. Fantastic. I know you've also been working with Liz Jandro as well with the the timber framing workshops, haven't you? So um, Liz, Liz and I go way back. She's one of the first um, natural building teachers that I met um, when I embarked on my journey. And she and I have just really kept in close contact over the years. And she's been a mentor of mine. I've been down and worked with her in, in Nicaragua several times. Um, and then um, she has just recently asked me to serve on her board um, for her Pueblo project, which is her nonprofit organization that does a lot of work um, in Central oh, America. And rural parts. Yeah, so I'm super excited about that. So, yeah, I, I will be working with her more in the coming years um, as I start to develop that relationship on her board and um, working with her now on helping to um, design a timber framed structure up in Vermont that will serve as her home base when she's in the States um, for the Pueblo project. So, um, oh, excellent. Yeah. So, yes. She's yeah, been Liz a great is fantastic. She was uh, the teacher on the first natural building workshop that I assisted on here in Guatemala. And uh, she was on, if anybody is interested in hearing from her, uh, her interview is in season one. And she had some fantastic insights as well as great explanations of the, of the Pueblo project in Nicaragua as well. Yes, she's fantastic. Great resource. So aside from all of these different types of natural building materials that you're using to address the challenges of your region, I know you've also pioneered using natural materials to renovate conventional homes. Could you talk about some of the challenges in that context and where you found the most success in integrating natural materials in industrial homes? <clears throat> yeah, um, so mostly it's just been um, cosmetic, aesthetic um, situations. Um, so, like in my own home, and, and my home is, is really served as my experimental <laughs> playground over the years. Um, 
So, I mean, I've, I've done some crazy funky things like um, cob and fill and, and just playing around with different clay plasters and paints. Um, so most of the um, conventional um, renovation applications has been more about um, using clay paints, clay plasters, or lime plasters, and I'm just increasingly trying to um, encourage clients to go with natural paints and natural plasters, and we have artisans in this region who are, are well-versed in lime plasters, um, and so I'm doing, um, I have clients with, you know, 1950s, kind of mid-century homes that are looking to modernize, um, and so we're bringing in lime plasters um, and and really just just really it's more about the, the finishes, the plasters and paints. I haven't to this point done any kind of um, like insulation or um, wall system, so to speak. Fair enough. I know you also focus a lot on low carbon building and energy efficiency within homes. Now, one of the things that I often try and get through to the students that I have here on my own natural building workshops is that building with natural materials does not automatically mean that you're going to have an energy efficient home. Could you talk about some of the challenges of communicating that to clients, first of all, and making sure that the correct materials are designed in such a way that energy efficiency is a part of the whole plan within the lifespan of the building? Yeah, this is quite a topic. Um, So I think for, I think one of the, the, one of the first things I try to do with any new client is really zero in and identify what their priorities are because when you say things like energy efficiency or green home or a natural home, that can mean so many different things. And oftentimes, um, unfortunately, the vision and the goals don't align with the budget. And <laughs> so the, the challenge is always in, okay, let's, let's really identify the things that are most important to you. If you're saying energy efficiency, are you talking about um, you want a super insulated, sealed up home, you know, passive house kind of style um, with a really efficient HVAC system? Or are you wanting a more um, passive home where where we are integrating passive cooling strategies so that you're just not even having to turn the air conditioner on um, and, and as little as possible um, you know looking at for, for really just to start with my opinion is just minimizing the square footage you know and having a really good, design um, from the start. So you can really minimize your square footage, which is then going to minimize your energy use um, from the start. And 
yeah, it, there's just so many different ways to um, to address these things. So for me, it, it's just, it's always, I find that people a lot of times don't really know what they want and they're kind of, they know they want a home that is more sustainable and more has that has that lower carbon footprint but they don't really quite know how to get there or or exactly what they want so i have to try and help them determine really what their goals are and then um and then we look at the whole system you know would it make more sense to have a mass wall system or an insulated system based on how they plan to use it um, there's some clients who really just don't like air conditioning. They want a home that's designed in a way that they're never going to have to turn it on. So that's kind of a different approach than the person who knows that they're going to run the air condition. So you may go with a more insulative system. And so it, I don't know if I answered your question. No, that's perfect. And I'm really glad you, you brought that up. Um, this is also one of the biggest challenges that I have when dealing with clients is that they often don't know what they want from the beginning. They hear all these buzzwords like sustainability, green homes, natural homes, like you mentioned, but don't exactly know what they mean and don't realize that they can mean something different in just about every context. So I'm really glad that you yeah. highlighted that, you know, sustainability for one family might mean something entirely different from their neighbors across the street based on yeah. what they need their home to do for them. And That's there's right. a ton of ways of, you know, getting energy efficient appliances if they don't want to make any real uh, changes in their lifestyle. But I'm also really glad that you mentioned just cutting down on the square footage because there's only a certain amount of energy efficiency and sustainability that anybody can achieve if you have a ton of unnecessary space. That's right. What are some of the other kind of easy to identify and actionable steps that someone can do for their home, whether it's existing or if they're starting from scratch, to help to achieve a more sustainable or regenerative lifestyle for themselves within their building? Yeah, so, um, you know, I like to, to kind of refer back to how people did things before, you know, like the last 50 years before air condition and um, really before air condition was invented, um, people really knew how to passively cool their homes. And I'm, I'm talking more about cooling because that's the region I live in. Um, our winters are pretty mild, um, but our summers are intense. So cooling is the much bigger issue here. Um, but, you know, people, if you look at the old vernacular architecture, you see the high ceilings, you see the covered porches, um, transom windows. You start to see how people were able to passively cool their homes. And now, you know, that a lot of that knowledge has gone out the window. So I try to bring a lot of that back, you know, and say, OK, here's the low hanging fruit, you know. First, let's reduce the square footage. Let's just, you know, get a really tight, efficient um, plan so we don't need a lot of square footage. And then if we have the ability to 
position it on a site the way that we want to. You don't always have that option, but if you do, you know, how can we properly shade the sun in the hot months and then let it in in the cool months? Um, and, you know, that's, that's the biggest thing right there. But even, I mean, like my house, it's a 1950s house and it's not positioned on the site the way I would want it. But some things that I've done is I've put, I've done some lime plaster on the Western facade, um, which really helps with cooling, um, in the, in the summertime, that late afternoon sun, um, I've actually took a temperature reading as an experiment one day. I have a sort of a light gray masonry home, um, and then I did a lime plaster over it, and it was a 20-degree difference, surface temperature. And is that just the because the, the white of the lime reflects more of the heat off? Yep, just that reflective quality. Um, so even something as simple as just, like, the color that you choose or um, you know lime just has these amazing cooling properties to it or even you know sunshades or, or getting into some of the you know permaculture um, ideas of planting the right kind of trees and plants on the you know western facade or the western side so you're shading yourself from that late afternoon sun or maybe you put um you know, the living spaces on the cooler side of the house. So, um, and then around here also, we have so much water. Um, so water catchment systems are really nice ways of just mitigating some of that water that would flood your yard. Okay, well, let's just gutter the eaves and get some cisterns and let's capture that water, you know, and then you can just, reuse it on um, as irrigation or if you want to you know add a pump and a filter you can pump it back in and, and flush your toilets with it so it's there's just varying degrees on every project of um of what can be done and and unfortunately it's largely determined by the budget and <laughs> it's just the reality of most projects you know i i tend to see people come to the table and with so many ideas, you know, I want all solar power, solar power, and you know, recirculated, captured water systems, and the whole nine yards. And then, you know, I'm always like the bearer of bad news. So, um, <laughs> I know I hate it, that part about my job too, especially when people come with big dreams and goals of, you know, building natural homes and keeping everything energy efficient and low carbon footprint, and that. Um, they expect, I think, mostly just because of bad mist and uh, propagating through Facebook posts and blog posts and such, yeah. these really, really cheap homemade um, structures on their land, people kind of come into it with the idea that they're going to get a nearly free building. And okay. it's just not the reality if you hire someone else as a contractor to build a structure for you. So how do you sort of combat those myths and softly break that to clients, um, especially yeah. if they're working on a tight budget? Um, yeah, so a lot of my clients are working on tight budgets. I, I'm kind of, um, I've always been passionate about working with kind of the average person. Um, 
and, and even, you know, very, very low budget people. And so I have clients that um, want to do everything themselves, you know, owner builder kind of scenarios. So of course you're going to spend a lot less money that way. Um, but I have first, first of all, I have some information on my website where I address costs and I try to give people just a real honest opinion about costs up front. But then I typically um, I offer a kind of one hour consultation session with any potential client where they can come and, and let's just sit down and brainstorm on your project. And then by the time they leave, I can typically give them just some real ballpark ideas of cost, you know, cost per square foot, whether they're going to build themselves or whether they're looking to hire. Obviously, if they're looking for, to hire someone, you you can pretty much double, more than double your cost. Um, so it's a conversation that I have gotten really comfortable with. And, you know, there is a lot of misinformation out there. Um and it's kind of what I tell people is like, it's kind of like anything, you know, think about food. Okay. You can go to food lion and buy a little Debbie cake for, you know, 75 cents, um, or conventional grown produce. Um, but, and it's going to be at a lower price point, but you could go to your local farmer's market and buy, you know, organically grown produce that's going to cost a lot more. But, you know, what are the benefits of that added cost? And so it's no different than anything else. You know, you have to examine what the quality is. Um, I always talk about initial costs versus lifetime costs. So oh, with very a lot important. of yeah. Yeah, projects, it's, Okay, well, you may spend a little more initial cost, um, you know, in getting this stuff properly designed and engineered and through permitting, and then you may spend a little more in, on construction, but your overall lifetime costs are going to be less because you're going to spend less on utilities, you're going to spend less on ongoing maintenance, um, and just overall problems. And so, um, that's, that's kind of a good way of looking at it as well. Um, yeah, I love those analogies but, and comparisons. It's a very good thing to keep in mind that, you know, like you mentioned with the food system, it's very similar with building the costs of producing things conventionally, or in the case of buildings industrially is largely yes. hidden by the fact that those companies yes. are not paying for the destruction and the environmental degradation that they have to take responsibility for. And That's right. all that machinery, all of these, you know, artificially low gas prices, for example, or the cost of fossil fuels is also hidden. And, you know, it may not come to you directly, but <laughs> it will affect the environment down the line. And many people are already paying for the very high cost of doing business that way, whether it's through the food system or through building. Yeah. And what I see, too, and, and what's happening so, um, so often is that, you know, there's all these, what I call just cracker box houses that are just these cheap, you know, cookie cutter development kind of homes being built quickly with, with cheap 
materials and you know guess what in five years these people are having or not even five years I mean there's people who are buying these homes brand new and they they immediately come with huge issues you know they didn't the materials are rotting or it wasn't flashed properly and or there's you know water infiltration or so you know they end up paying for it through litigation or through maintenance and repairs so it's it's like anything you know it's kind of you pay for what you get and i i try and also remind people that oh you know we're primarily just talking about the wall system there's the whole rest of the house you still have to have a foundation a roof plumbing fixtures you know electrical mechanical um, countertops and doors and windows, you know, so, um, even, you know, so we're, so the wall system itself is really only about 20% of the cost of the home. So absolutely. Yeah. And for those owner builders who are, are very gung ho, even in the ones who have experience, it's a very daunting task to have this skill set or, you know, even ask for the help required to do things correctly. If you're not a very experienced contractor, because there are just so many different skill sets in putting together an entire house. Like you said, the wall systems are, are a surprisingly small portion, even if they take up uh, a large physical amount of the structure itself. Yeah. So on that note, um, with all of this great insight, and thank you so much for dispelling some of the myths and misconceptions around natural building. Before I let you go, could you share with our listeners how they can get in touch with you and how they can find you online as well as your workshops and courses? Sure. Um, you can find me online at, um, the, my website is rootdowndesigns.com. That's R-O-O-T. D-O-W-N-D-E-S-I-G-N-S. Um, you can also find me on Facebook, uh, both under Root Down Designs and just my personal name, April McGill. Um, I'm also on Instagram with uh, Root Down Designs. And then I recently started a YouTube channel under Root, da- Root Down Designs as well, um, Oh, that's so, exciting. I'll have to check that out. Yeah, and then anybody, I have a kind of ongoing email list as well. So anybody that wants to be on my email list, just shoot me an email or a message and, and let me know, and I'll add you in. And then anytime I have an upcoming workshop or a course, or um, like I just now sent out a survey um, that I just posted um through my email list as well as it's on my Instagram and Facebook site, but it's just a quick 10 question survey. I'm trying to really identify what the needs are out there um, in terms of housing so that I can respond to those needs because I'm working on coming up with um, small affordable housing prototypes so I'm trying to offer um, essentially plans that you could just um, purchase and build with. Um, I'm also working with some local organizations to try and start to address major affordable housing issues in 
in this region or lack thereof. Um, so anybody would, would like to take that survey, that would be wonderful. Um, but anyway, that, that's how you can find me. And if you want to be updated on things like that or upcoming workshops, um, I'd be just shoot me a message and I'll add you to my, my email list. Marvelous. Well, thank you so much for taking the time today, April. It's been a real pleasure to finally connect with you after following your, your website and your social media feeds for such a long time. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time and the insights that you gave us today. And hopefully we can do a follow-up in a later season. That would be wonderful. Thanks, Oliver. And I really appreciate you um, taking the time to talk with me and to highlight my work. My pleasure. All right. We'll be in touch soon. Bye. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode. As always, you can find all the show notes for this and all other episodes at AbundantEdge.com by clicking on the podcast tab in the navigation bar. On the website, you can also find a whole range of educational articles as well as the services we offer from design and consulting to education. While you're there, don't forget to take a look at the courses and workshops that we offer, which are all designed to empower you to take back control of your life by giving you the skills to produce your own food, manage landscapes regeneratively, build your own homes and structures with natural materials, and most importantly, to dream ever bigger about the highest potential that you could achieve for yourself, your community, and the planet that we all share. Thank you sincerely to all of you who have and continue to add comments and send feedback to me. Your contributions help this to be the conversation and dialogue that it's meant to be. For anyone else interested, you can email me and the whole team directly at info at AbundantEdge.com or you can post your questions directly to the Abundant Edge podcast Facebook page to which there's a link in the show notes of this episode. All of your feedback makes these episodes and interviews so much more engaging and help me to give you the information and content that you want. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you again in next week's session.